All right, we're in Luke chapter 18. If you're not there, you should open there. We're going to go through verses 1 through 8 today. The big idea of our text today is praying without losing heart. Praying without losing heart. This is going to be Jesus' exhortation to us through his word. And, you know, I want you just to consider the amazing fact here as we're, we're just launching into this. That we have an audience with the God of the universe. That we can at any time and at any place, we can approach God. We can come before his throne. We can bring our requests to him. We can have a conversation with the living God where we speak to him, we stop in prayer, we listen to his response. This is an amazing thing that is available to us. And as I was putting the study together this week, I I remembered a a thing that happened to me uh, early on in my marriage that kind of illustrates this idea. It was 1986, um, and, uh, you know, been married for about a year. Uh, I was going through paramedic school, so I was broke, uh, and I had an opportunity to make some extra money driving a limo one night, taking a couple of couples in a limo to a Willie Nelson concert, and, uh, um, and, and so... As I'm driving them there, uh, it was, uh, I think, at Universal Amphitheater. Uh, we went to Universal Studios, I remember that, and I had to go to Will Call to pick up the tickets that were waiting for them at Will Call. And there was, you know, some logistical things. I had to, you know, talk to the person who'd set it all up. And the limo came equipped with a portable cell phone. And so uh, keep in mind, it's 1986, okay? So, so, it's, so it's not you know, the thing you pull out of your pocket, it's a car battery that you're lugging around, right? Literally, it's the size of a car battery. How many of you remember those? How many of you had one of those things, right? With, you know, the, you, you held it, and then it's got a regular phone cord, like the good old days, and a full-size phone headset. So I've got this phone headset, and I'm walking through Universal Studios, and it caused quite a stir. Because not very many people had a phone. So there I am, I'm walking through, and people are, I hear them whispering, they're pointing, they're like, he's got a phone. He, he's talking, to, look at that guy, he's got a phone. Now, nowadays, you know, it's like we just, we just take it for granted. We get irritated, you know, hey, you know, obnoxious cell phone guy, hang up, you know. But then it was kind of a big deal. And I kind of think about prayer in this regard, that we have this incredible access to God, and, and yet... A lot of times we, we either take it for granted or, or we, we've sort of lost sometimes or lose sometimes the idea of just how incredible it is that we can talk to God at any time. And so here in our text, Jesus is going to give a parable. Let's jump right into it. Luke chapter 18, verse 1, then he, Jesus, spoke a parable to them, meaning his disciples, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying... Now, he's going to launch into this parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's not a real story. He's just telling, he's making up a story, but he's illustrating a heavenly point. And so he says, there was in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now, that's an important point in the story. Jesus is going to emphasize that in a minute. And he says, now, there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, meaning she comes to this wicked judge saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, 
Though I do not fear God nor regard man, here Jesus is emphasizing that point, wicked judge, I don't fear God, I don't regard men, even though I don't do that, he says, yet, verse 5, because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. That word weary, it, it's, got a, it, it's kind of got a boxing connotation to it. It, it really kind of had, carries with it the idea that she is going to stun me. You know, you, you're boxing, you get hit on the button, and you just get your bell rung, you know. And this is kind of the idea. She, she's going to weary me down. She's going she's to ring my bell. She's going to give me a black eye. This is the idea. And how is she doing this? Because she's relentless, man. She just keeps coming to me. Then the Lord said in verse 6, hear what the unjust judge said. This woman, through her relentless prayers, finally wore him down. And he says, verse 7, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Here in our text, Jesus gives a parable, and in it we can find, I'm going to put this on the screen for you, this is the outline of our message, three significant contrasts in this story. Number one, we have a contrast between praying and fainting. Secondly, we have a contrast between this widow and God's elect, God's children, drastic contrast. And thirdly, we see a contrast between an unrighteous judge and a righteous God. So let's jump right in. First point, if you're taking notes, write it down. Contrast we're looking at between praying and fainting. Jesus says here in verse 1 that man always ought to pray and not to lose heart. That phrase, lose heart, uh, in the Greek, it's egg kakeo. And here's what it means. It means uh, to be utterly spiritless. It means to be wearied out. It means to be exhausted. And this is where the King James translation nails it right on target. It says that Jesus said, men ought always to pray and not to faint. Not to faint. Anybody here ever lost consciousness? You ever fainted? Anybody? That's a treat, isn't it? And here's what happens, you know, when you lose consciousness, you, you kind of have this feeling that comes over you, and you know you're going down, and there ain't a thing you can do about it, right? It's just, it's sort of like, oh, here I go, you know, kind of thing. Brenda, she used to work at a diagnostic products company, and they would make these kits that, you know, would were for diagnostic purposes, and they would do internal controls where they would test the kits in-house, and in order to do that, They needed blood samples, and so they would offer to their employees that they could have their blood drawn so that they could test the kits in-house, and and they would give them some sort of an incentive that they would do this. So Brenda and her supervisor decided one day, well, sure, we'll give some blood. And so they're there, and Brenda gives her blood, and now her supervisor, a guy by the name of Sarus, he he steps up, and they they no sooner stick the needle in his arm, he turns white as a ghost, he says, I'm going now. (laughs) Away, Away he went, you know. And sometimes, you know, what the Lord is saying here is that it can be that way with us in prayer, that that we can be in such a place where we can become weary, we can become spiritless, we can become faint 
in prayer. And, and I want you to take note of something. If you look at verse 1 and if you look at verse 8, um, there's, a, there's a connection between these two verses and the verse we left off with last week, last week in Luke 17, 37. Here's the idea. Jesus says here in verse 1 that we need to pray and not lose heart. Uh, he says again in verse 8, basically, that faithful prayer is going to be a rare commodity on the earth when he returns, right? Why? Well, Jesus basically said last week, you'll recall, verse 37 of, of, verse seven, of chapter 17, that the society we live in is a rotting corpse, so to speak. That basically, we are living in a place where the atmosphere of the world in which we live is being gradually, day by day, polluted with evil and, and with rottenness. And, and so the, the idea is that over time, when you live in that kind of an atmosphere that we call the world, what happens is you will find yourself having your spiritual life affected. And, 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 and if you're not careful, what happens is you can become discouraged, you can become disheartened, you can become distracted, right? But prayer, it's the one thing that lifts you out of the toxic environment that we live in, and it elevates you to that, to that atmosphere that is pure, the presence of the Lord, where, where the atmosphere is pure and not toxic. And, and so this is what Paul was talking about, by the way, in, in, to the Philippians in Philippians 4. Let me put it on the screen for you. Paul said this. He said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and he promised the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Jesus Christ. When Paul says, be anxious for nothing, the word in the Greek, it means to have a distracting care. To have a distracting care. Any of you ever been distracted, right? You have some sort of distracting care. They're all around us. We go through it in a, a multitude of ways, you know. You, you, you have a financial burden, and it distracts you. It keeps you up all night, you know, stressing over this thing. Or you've got a troubled relationship. And, and man, that troubled relationship, it just fills you with constant worry and distracts you and just keeps your focus on, on just what's going on. Or, or maybe it's a medical issue. Maybe you or a loved one going through a medical issue. We can be distracted. We can become burdened. We can become stressed out. And a multitude of other things, living in the toxic environment of this world. We have all kinds of things that can cause uncertainty and it can weigh us down. And the result is it makes us anxious. It's been said that anxiety is anticipating the future in the worst possible scenario and then freaking out about it. Right? How many of you are really good at that? You just imagine the worst and you freak out about it, right? And the fact is that it's a huge problem, anxiety, a huge problem in the United States. Overwhelming problem. I read an article. It was a study published by the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Pastors read that kind of stuff. And it was entitled, The Economic Burden of Anxiety Disorders. And here's what they found. They said that anxiety disorders are the most common medical illness issue in the United States. And that it afflicts, it affects over 40 million people, Right? Imagine that. That's 20% of the adult population in the United States over the age of 18, one in five people, has a clinically diagnosable anxiety disorder. It, it, it's just amazing. 
And they're, they're focusing primarily on the economic impact. And basically they said that the related cost of anxiety disorders is the $42 billion a year, one-third of the mental health budget of the United States, all associated to anxiety disorder. That, that's, that doesn't include all of the lost wages and productivity and all these other things. They're just talking about the medical health costs of anxiety. They go on in the article to talk about what causes anxiety and they, and, and they give the six top causes for anxiety in the United States. So we'll look at those real quick. The first one, fractured support systems. This, this could include a lack of family or friends or a breakdown in your relationships, your other relationships or, or isolation from people. This is what's known as a fractured support system. The result is anxiety. Second thing they say is financial trouble. You're like, duh, I could have told them that, right? This causes major anxiety for some people. Third thing they said, a busy lifestyle that contradicts natural rhythms. In other words, the sun goes down and you don't, right? That's, that produces anxiety for people. They also talked about the constant noise and interruption of technology, right? You get a text message and somebody's mad that you didn't answer. I just texted you three minutes ago and I haven't heard from you, you know, kind of thing. And so the constant interruption of technology breeds anxiety. They said the fifth most common thing was overwork. They point out that most Americans work in excess of 50 hours a week. So overwork causes uh, an, an increase in anxiety. Sixthly, they said events that induce fear and or a loss of hope. And we live in a toxic world that's circling the drain. So those are manifold. Those are many. There's lots of things that induce fear and you know, bring us to a place where we lose hope. Now, who here can relate to this list? You're, just showing, you're like, I've I'm, I'm got anxiety just going over the list, you know? Thank you, right? Now, if you listen to the experts, here's what they'll tell you. The experts will say that there's things that you can and should do. You need behavioral therapy, or you need cognitive therapy, or you need to take antidepressants, or you need to take some tranquilizers and get a good night's sleep, or they'll recommend exercise, or they'll say, you know, there's alternative treatments like yoga or aromatherapy, or you can use essential oils or biofeedback, whatever the case is, right? And most of those things are okay, but here's the deal. There's a way that's a lot more effective. It's one word. What is it? Jesus, it's prayer. It's prayer. Prayer is the thing, right? And, and the, it's a lot more effective. And so God says, look, don't be anxious. And how? He says, by everything, prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the God of all peace, he'll guard your hearts. He'll guard your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, when we pray, and then in the process of prayer, we actively remember how faithful God has been to us in the, in the things that we have to be thankful for, then what happens as we're casting our cares upon him, God will give us that peace. And so Jesus now in verse 2, he launches into his parable. And, and what's he say? He, he says, you got this wicked judge. And, uh, and he doesn't regard God, doesn't regard man. And you got this widow and she's just relentless, coming to the judge over and over again. Give me relief from my enemies, man. You, you need to get me justice for my adversaries. And so this, this cat, he ain't listening to her. He doesn't want to regard her. He doesn't want to listen to her, but she's working him over. And so finally, he's like, fine, good grief. I'm going to just do this because you, you are just, you, you're relentless. 
And God says, hear what that judge said. We need to hear what that judge says. Now, I want to focus now on the contrast between this widow and you and me as God's elect. Those that have received Christ by faith, we have been adopted by God as his children. There's a major contrast between us and this woman. Now, let me give you the backstory so you can appreciate what she's up against, okay? Here, this woman, in this day, typically when you would have some sort of an issue that you needed to have, you know, hey, I got a dispute, we need to get this dispute settled, I need some justice, what would happen is that the Jews would go before their church elders, and they would have that dispute uh, mitigated. But this is a different scenario. This is Uh, something that has to do with the Roman rule. What happened is Rome has overtaken Israel. They've occupied Jerusalem. And what Rome would do is they would provide uh, magistrates, judges, that would travel on a circuit and they would hear different cases. And the way it worked was this, is that, you know, there wasn't one fixed courthouse. They would set up tents from town to town and the magistrate would roll in, and everybody in town was welcome to gather around the tents. They could listen to what was going on. This was their version of court TV, and so, hey, this is cool. Let's go watch you know, this, this court proceedings take place. But if you wanted your case to be heard by this magistrate, you had to get them to agree to, to listen to your case. You had to be approved, and you had to be accepted. And so typically, these magistrates really didn't care about the people, and they were oftentimes corrupt, and their assistants that worked for them that approved and accepted the cases were also corrupt. And so usually, typically, if you wanted to get them to hear your case, you had to bribe them up front to even put you on the docket to to listen to your case. And so the text, as we read it, it seems to indicate that this magistrate didn't want to have anything to do with this woman's case. Why? She's got, she's, she's got three strikes against her. Number one, she's a woman. Women had no rights in this society. They were not even allowed in court. Their testimony wasn't allowed in court. And, and so she's up against that. Secondly, she's a widow. And so she's got no husband to represent her in such a system. And her third strike was that she was poor. So she couldn't bribe this judge to hear her case even if she wanted to. So three strikes against this gal. Now, Jesus in this story, and you got to get this, he is making a contrast. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater, okay? And what he's illustrating, he's illustrating the contrast between our access to God, which is the greater, and this widow's lack of access to an unrighteous judge, which is the lesser, okay? So he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And the idea is this, that if this poor widow's pleas are heard, as the text indicates, how much more will your pleas be heard before God as his child, as you come to him? That's the contrast here. Now, these are the three strikes against this woman, She's a woman, she's got no husband, she's a widow, and she's poor. But there's also several other contrasts in her situation. I'm going to put each one on the screen for you. Number one, whereas this woman was a stranger, here's the contrast that Jesus is making, you're God's child, right? She's coming to this this unrighteous judge as a stranger. You, when you pray, you're coming to God as his child. 
right? Here's what uh, Paul said to the Romans. He said, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The phrase means Daddy, that you call the God of the universe your dad. And so, so, you know, hey, Daddy, right? And, and you're no stranger who's coming to God. You're his child who's precious to him, right? Paul continues, he says, The Spirit himself bears witness within our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. The psalmist said this, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. You got to know that. You got to believe that. He goes on. He says, the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and he delivers them out of all of their trouble. Now, Jesus makes another contrast here in this story. (coughs) The second contrast, (coughs) excuse me, that Jesus makes between us and this widow is that whereas this widow had no advocate, she was all alone. We, you and me as God's children, we do have an advocate. We have an advocate. Here's what uh, the Apostle John says, 1 John 2.1. He says, my little children, these things are right to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, here it is, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Right? Uh, Paul, again, speaking to the Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The right hand of the of the. The judge's bench is the place of the advocate. This is where the advocate argues, uh, or the the defense attorney argues for for, uh, his client. He wants to be in defense of them. And the Bible says that right now, today, Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God. And what's he doing at the right hand of the throne of God? He's praying for you by name. He's advocating for you. Right? And, And so prayer, this access that we have to God, we pray to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see next. The, uh, Paul wrote to the, to the Romans, Romans 8.26 said, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray for, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the idea here is when we are weak and we don't know exactly how we ought to pray, God himself, through the Holy Spirit, helps by making intercession for us. And the idea of groaning, as the text says, you know, with groanings too deep for words, the idea of groaning is simply this, that the communication that the Holy Spirit has on our behalf and in our benefit, in our deep groanings of our heart, he basically, he's communicating beyond our natural ability to express, right? The Holy Spirit translates the deep groanings of our hearts into articulate prayers before God. It's an amazing thing. This is what God has done. Think of it this way. When you go to court, you have a lawyer present with you. And what does that lawyer do? The lawyer represents you in the case. He knows all the facts of your case. He knows all the details of your petition. And he then accompanies you in before the judge. This is the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. 
This is how he operates. Major contrast. We have an advocate as we go to God in prayer. This widow had none. Another major contrast that Jesus makes here between us and this widow is, number three, whereas this widow had no promise to claim, listen, you and me, we have an abundance of promises to claim in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Peter said this, he said, because of his glory and excellent, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature, the Lord Jesus Christ, and escape the world's corruption by human desires. Paul writing to the Corinthians, he said, all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In other words, all God's promises to us are fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so we have this incredible thing. We see, number one, this contrast between praying and fainting. Secondly, we see this contrast, and several of them, between this widow and God's elect. And I want to conclude here looking at this third thing. We see a contrast between this unrighteous judge and our righteous heavenly Father. Now I want you to notice again, this unrighteous judge, what's he say there at the end of verse 4? He says, Though I don't fear God, and I don't regard man, but yet because this widow troubles me, I'm going to avenge her. And again, what Jesus is doing is he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, look, if an unrighteous judge, the lesser, if the unrighteous judge will answer this woman's plea, who he cares nothing about, makes that abundantly clear in his story. How much more will God answer your plea? How much more will he answer my plea, who he cares greatly about? It's his child crying out. Jesus says in verse 7 and 8, And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. I like what David Guzik says in his commentary in this regard. He says, The unjust judge only reluctantly answered the woman's request. Jesus did not give this parable to say that God was like the unjust judge, but he gave it because he's unlike the unjust judge. That's what what David Guzik says. He says, God loves to answer our prayers, (coughs) and he even helps us when we pray. God is on your side When you pray, he's not against you as this unjust judge was against the widow. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Isn't that amazing? God's on your side. And so the big idea, Jesus says, is that men should always pray and not lose heart. And that word always, so key. If you wanted to circle it nearby, you could write this. You could write, in every season. That's the thing, is that men should pray in every season. Jesus is not suggesting that you should always pray 24-7, every second of every day that you need to be engaged in prayer. No, he's saying you should pray in every season. There's a similar idea reflected in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, where it just simply says this. This is the entire verse. Pray without ceasing. And that word ceasing, it means without omission. So you put these, things, these two things together. We're to pray in every season, and we're not to leave anything out. That's the attitude. That's the idea. Now, here's what I know, and I know you guys can identify with me. How many times, when it comes to prayer, do you find yourself, you, you're going through some sort of situation that is anxiety-producing, that is burdensome, 
and you stress about it, you worry about it, you Google it, you talk to people about it, but you never take it to God in prayer, right? How many are honest enough to say that that's been you, okay? Yeah, several of you, okay? That is the truth. I mean, good grief. My wife, you know, I, I, recently, I can't remember what the issue was, but I was stressing out, I was talking to her about it. She's like, have you prayed about it? So if you're, if you're a sinner like me, you're silent for a minute, and then you throw up a real quick prayer. Lord God, I haven't prayed about this, please. And then you look at your wife and go, yeah, I prayed about it. <laughs> right? <laughs> but how often do we, like we stress, and we don't even come to God in prayer? And that's the idea. Jesus is saying, hey, in every season, without omission, Carry this burden to God. Why? Well, listen, he wants us to come to him. He wants us to experience his faithfulness in every area of our life. He he wants us to go to God in this way and see God's goodness in a tangible way. He wants us to take this issue to God and so we can grow in godliness, how we can grow in this attitude of persistently prevailing upon the Lord. Right? And, and it's so critically important. Now, I've shared this quote with you before, but, it, but it's so significant here. Billy Graham, talking about prayer. He says, it's the rope that pulls God and man together, but it doesn't pull God down to us. What's it do? It pulls us up to him. That's the thing. See, don't lose heart in prayer as you're living in a toxic world. And the air around you is toxic. What do you need? You need to go to where the air is pure. You need to go to the one who is pure. And the process of doing that, what it does is as you're praying about the situation, the answer to that prayer may well be no. It may well be wait. But the issue isn't necessarily the issue. The issue is I need to come to God who's in control of everything because because he's the one who calls balls and strikes. He's the one that knows what's best. He's the one that promises to work all things together for the good. And so coming to him... Coming up to that, that purified air in prayer allows me to take the issue that I'm burdened about, but let God be the arbitrator of yes and no in my life. Let God direct me. He ain't going to steer a parked car, man. You know. And so I just got to be coming to him and letting God direct me through that prayer. Here's the question. Are you persistent in prayer? As we close. Are you persistent in prayer in this way? Ian Bounds said this in his book, uh, The Power Through Prayer. He said, the church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. Men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. He says, the Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through men. He goes on to say this. He says, the person who prays puts God into the work. God does not come into our work as a matter of course or principle, but he comes in by prayer and he comes in by urgency.